The Unshackled Waves, episode 128. Broadcasting from Melbourne, Australia, this is The Unshackled Waves with Tim Wills. Brought to you by theunshackled.net. Hello everyone, great to have your company. The Barnaby Joyce sex scandal really snowballed this week with the media going in for the kill against Joyce and he and Malcolm Turnbull coming to public blows at week's end. An ongoing story is the Philip Ruddock-led Religious Freedom Review, which is having private hearings and taking submissions. More Indigenous reconciliation was proposed this week after the Closing the Gap report and the 10th anniversary of the Apology to the Stolen Generation. And there was also another deadly school shooting in the United States. To discuss these major stories, we are joined again by the Unshackled Senior Editor, Damien Ferry. This is the Unshackled Waves Review Show. Damien, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Tim. Uh, the Barnaby Joyce uh, sex scandal really turbocharged uh, this week. Uh, last week, Labor was saying it was a, a private matter and wouldn't go near it. But uh, this week, they've really gone on the attack, not because of the affair per se, but uh, over the appropriateness of uh, taxpayers' money, because uh, Barnaby Joyce's mistress, lover, whatever you want to call her, uh, Vicky Campion, she was moved from Barnaby Joyce's office to first uh, Resources Minister Matt Canavan's office, then to uh, National Whip uh, Damien Drum's uh, office. And of course, uh, uh, partners are, are not allowed to uh, you know, work in uh, MPs' uh, offices. And there was a, a technicality where you know, because uh, she was a mistress, she didn't count as a partner, and so that was uh, that for some reason was okay. Uh, so, and also there's the fact that you know Barnaby is also staying uh, rent free uh, with Vicky Campion uh, in, in this apartment owned by his uh, business friend uh, Greg Maguire, and there was a lot of debate. You know, did you know Barnaby Joyce you know ask for this uh, accommodation because He's only, uh, you know, recently updated his pecuniary interest uh, register. So it's all snowballed this week. And uh, in midweek, it looked like Barnaby Joyce might get rolled as as Nationals leader. But uh, by the end of the the parliamentary week, they uh, decided to that he would, you know, at least uh, see out the week. Uh, you know, in in my opinion. Uh, you know, Joy, uh, Joyce should have gone, you know, for not just those reasons, but also, you know, the, you know, hypocrisy thing, the fact that, you know, he's supposed to be from a, you know, family values, politician, you know, social conservative and, you know, has gone and and done this, but it, it looked as if he was going to survive. Exactly. I mean, I, um, I think that Labor actually going after this issue um, is opportunism, but it's something that was bound to happen. Um, they have skeletons in their own closet that they don't want to um, touch on. But this is the thing with politics. They, um, they always try and go after weaknesses in the um, opposite uh, party and they will do what they can to try and tear them down. I mean, Turnbull has a very thin um, majority in Parliament and anything to um, create uh, more trouble for the government... And possibly um, if Joyce was uh, that badly wounded, 
that he was uh, to leave Parliament altogether and cause another by-election after um, the last one happening only, you know, not too long ago, it would definitely um, perhaps cause that, that seat to change hands and um, for the government to be in a very bad, uh, fragile position. And, uh, you know, also just in general, it uh, definitely was a bad thing for him to do. He um, has been criticised by the public uh, there has been support for him in some elements, but at the end of the day, most people look up to politicians and expect their leaders to be moral leaders that uh, lead um, at least close to perfect lives. And this is what they request and what they expect of their leaders. The, the last thing that they want is for these kind of scandals to break loose and Many, many times in the past when uh, these sort of scandals have happened, uh, particularly when there was infidelity in relationships, uh, according to um, politicians, even though they were private matters, it has ruined careers. So he has hang, uh, hung on so far, but for how long, it, it's going to be hard to say. Obviously, the, the government wants to try and put it behind them and to slowly try and get it out, out of the public eye and they feel maybe that by uh, demoting uh, Barnaby, even though they might want to in one way uh, do this, um, at the same time by doing this, it's just dragging the issue on and it's just going to be uh, more bickering and more, um, it's just going to elevate things within the next week or two when they're, they're trying to keep it at bay. And of course, at the end of the sitting week, uh, it was uh, announced that uh, Barnaby Joyce would take leave uh, next week, so he wouldn't be uh, acting uh, Prime Minister. So we're going to get uh, Matthias Cormann, who's going to be the acting Prime Minister. And then later on in the day, in the Prime Ministerial Courtyard, uh, Malcolm Turnbull, he announced uh, that uh, ministers would be banned from uh, having sex with their uh, staff, or as he put it, he almost sounded a bit like... Bill Clinton, uh, that, you know, ministers should not be having sexual relations with their staff, which uh, was quite uh, humorous. And he also, you know, uh, you know, obviously let his you know emotions get the better of him because he really uh, slammed Barnaby Joyce, saying it was a shocking error of judgment. Uh, he'd uh, caused a, you know, world of woe to the women in his life. And uh, the the sex ban was uh, it was mocked by you know most uh, commentators and uh, I made this comment last week on the on the show that you know uh, that the proposal for a sex ban it really makes a mockery of you know the love is love campaign uh, that you know oh you know we were told last year you can't help who you fall in love to but you know apparently there's still you know certain people who you're not allowed to uh, you know fall in love with and you know be happy together. Well, personally, I don't actually um, have any issue with um, a person that wants to pursue a relationship with um, somebody um, that, that happens to be a politician. But I think the, the, the main thing that uh, brought it out to be scandalous as it was, in many people's eyes, was that Barnaby Joyce was married and that it was a, an affair rather than him just being a single man um, that ended up having a, uh, a relationship with, with this woman. I don't think that if that was the case, it would be such a big issue as it is now. And not only that, also the, um, the issue of perhaps a, um, a conflict of interest 
because of um, that working relationship that they had and uh, how that may affect things. And um, obviously, um, her going to different areas, to different uh, ministers to work and getting special privileges because of the position she was in, because she was seeing him. And also him, of course, getting the free accommodation from a businessman. And uh, I mean, me and you both know that things don't happen to be free. I mean, you don't you don't just. Um, well, it's very rare these days that people are so kind to just be able to offer something for free, especially to someone like Barnaby Joyce that gets paid a lot of money, hundreds of thousands a year. Um, so I mean, it wouldn't have been a big deal for him to. Uh, to, to pay for rental accommodation, but to give it away for free, I, I think it was reckless because I think uh, it only put uh, more heat on him that he didn't need. And I think it um, possibly may expose other things that we're not aware of. And I think that's something that um, looks sus to me. And of course, Joyce hit back the, the next day on the Friday saying the, the Prime Minister's comments were uh, inept and they'd caused uh, further harm and then uh, accused Malcolm Turnbull of trying to uh, interfere in the affairs of the uh, National Party, saying that this would cause a, a rift in the coalition. And of course, the, the headlines that Friday were, you know, government in crisis, you know, the coalition uh, now in crisis, that, you know, because, you know, there was this... Uh, perception that Malcolm Turnbull had attempted to you know, interfere in the deliberations of the National Party. But uh, having said that, it must be frust frustrating for not just Turnbull, but for Liberal MPs that, you know, you know they're you know, married to the uh, National Party, to, to use the expression, and they're dragging the, the whole government down. And, but Liberal MPs, they're powerless to, to do anything because it's a National Party matter. That, that's right. I mean, the Nationals hold a, a great number of seats and if they were to part ways, it would it would cause a lot of friction and they would lose their majority and, I mean, it, it would be a, a massive change in the political uh, sphere in Australia. I, um, I personally actually um, think that the Nationals uh, should at least um, cement themselves as a, as a separate identity to the Liberals because I think they're so different ideologically that for them to have um, such a partnership and be so close that they are isn't very, um, I mean, isn't very suitable for either parties, um, either side, because, I mean, they're just so different in, in, their, um, in their beliefs. So, I mean, in, in that case there, I think it would be good that the Nationals maybe ended up going back to their base and try to, um, from scratch, build up something and, and become a, a big third-party force that they could do because they obviously have the seats to do it. And it could obviously also um, be able to destroy the Greens in the process. But in saying that, um, I mean, for instance, uh, Turnbull giving the deputy PM uh, job to Matthias Cormann rather than another national could have been a, a little bit of a, um, um, a friction that the nationals thought that there was something there. I mean, um, Turnbull did have um, right to um, say what he said. He did go hard on it. And like, you know, I mean, possibly he uh, in, in public, you know, it isn't very often that you hear some some uh, of the things that he said to uh, another colleague, especially from a prime minister to a deputy. It's um, not 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 as such the same as how we used to see John Howard and Costello that hated each other, for instance. But then in public, always you know acted like they were best buddies, even though people knew that wasn't the case. 
but here they're, they're actually taking swipes at each other. So Barnaby did have right to, you know, feel like he was, um, you know, hard done by because, you know, it was a personal attack. But at the same time, you know, Barnaby doing reckless activities and putting his, uh, you know, self-interest and pleasure first rather than um, trying to represent and, and, and do a good job at, uh, as a deputy leader, um, deputy prime minister, and um, obviously uh, being a good representative for, for the people. Uh, he has um, actually brought the, the government down, like you mentioned. And they had a uh, crisis meeting together, Malcolm Turnbull and Barnaby Joyce, where they agreed to, you know, put the uh, last couple of days behind them and work together uh, in the in the future. And most of the media has been saying, oh, you know, we're not going to buy that. I don't think the public will uh, buy that. And they seem to be of the opinion that, you know, Barnaby Joyce, given that, you know, he's the one that's caused uh, all of this controversy, that, you know, he, you know, should eventually you know decide to go or the national party you know should mm. eventually come to the conclusion that he should go and it was interesting there was a news poll i uh, released uh, just uh, tonight that showed that 65 percent of voters think that uh, barnaby joyce uh, should resign and so it seems to be that the the national the, uh, the National Party, they still seem to believe that, you know, Barnaby is their best asset, despite, you know, the, the damage, you know, of, you know, to their, you know, reputation and their moral authority that is caused. And they, they don't seem to, you know, ha have their, you know, ruthlessness of, you know, other parties to, you know, come to the conclusion that, you know, we really need to, you know, basically, you know, go in for the political kill and, you know, that's the only way to deal with this. Well, I, I don't think that he is the best asset that they that they have. Actually, I think that they've got several um, political candidates that would do a great job as leader of the Nationals, and I think um, it, it will come to a stage where we have to sort of see who else could take on such a role, because Barnaby actually was quite a popular person, um, especially when in um, government under the Abbott government, he was very popular. And um, all of a sudden, when Turnbull ended up taking over, we, we did think that there was going to be a lot of friction between the two and that, you know, Barnaby was going to stand up for the conservative voice and everything. But he seemed to, for a long time, um, really, you know, become buddies with Turnbull and, and sort of uh, not really, you know, um, go after his, his principles, just sort of go with the liberal kind of... Um, flow and, and not really sort of uh, represent the, the base of, of the party rather than ju just let the Liberals kind of take over and, you know, um, and, and a lot of people uh, dislike him now because of that. So there, there is many other people that can do a, a better job, I think, that, that, that are people favourites, you know, like George Christensen and, um, and Darren Chester. I mean, there's, there's heaps of them, you know, out there. They're really good candidates and I think it might be time that there is a change because, I mean, something like this usually brings down politicians. It's not very often that we see people uh, get through this and, and actually, you know, um, stay on board without any sort of consequences taking place. 
The inquiry into religious freedom, which is being led by former Attorney General uh, Philip Ruddock, which was set up uh, by the Turnbull government to basically placate conservatives who uh, were worried about uh, what same-sex marriage would uh, uh, entail for religious freedom. Uh, it's currently holding uh, public hearing, oh, sorry, private hearings and private submissions, but uh, the LGBT groups have made their uh, submissions uh, public, and they've you know, have basically said they want you know all religious uh, exemptions from anti-discrimination laws uh, removed. So uh, that means uh, you know schools, uh, you know aged care facilities, you know wouldn't uh, wouldn't be able to um, you know basically you know service people who um, you know adhere to you know their religious faith and it you know it's it's basically they're they're going to you know they're never going to you know basically say because uh, uh, you know this the organization one of the organizations which made this mission was the equality campaign and you would have thought okay you've achieved you know marriage equality you thought you, you would you would have thought okay we've you know done it you know let's you know disband now but they're they're pushing even further with this well my argument was that um marriage equality was only one um part of the, the, the broad range of things that they were after in the first place. And uh, we've seen over the last 50 years many changes that progressive people, uh, left-wing individuals have, have campaigned for. And back in those days when they were campaigning on those issues, they, they would have been saying the same thing. Oh, this is all we want. You know, we're going to be happy once we achieve this. And conservatives have always been on the defence and have been losing the argument because of it because... At the end of the day, they always end up trying to defend these positions that have been around for who knows how long, many, many years. And when these changes take place and they lose the, the discussion, they end up then having to jump to the next thing then to conserve, which then, then they lose that and it continues going on like that. So they've ended up losing a lot of battles over the many decades that we've, we've been going through this. So we went to the same-sex marriage that ended up losing um, and, and ended up coming into law. Now, obviously, there was um, the slippery slope argument that people were talking about when it came to um, religious freedoms that were going to be over, over, override. I mean, all we had to do was look at Canada as a prime example of this and see what happened over there. And at first, for instance, in those countries... Uh, they had protections, and then not too long after, it could have been 12 months, two years after, it, it just eradicated straight away and it was gone. So if those countries went down that path, why wouldn't our country go down that path as well, especially with the same sort of campaigners and people that were behind these things, not to mention all the safe schools issues, uh, all, all, all that included, that's going to be obviously um, put into the education curriculum, but I think one issue here that at the very least people were expecting was that they were able to have freedom of religion where uh, a priest wouldn't have to be forced to marry a particular individual um, that was going against their views. So it seems to me that is it going to be the case that churches are going to have to go soon enough in many years to come underground to be able to practice their religion properly? Otherwise, if they are to adhere to such changes, then they wouldn't be able to really practice their faith in a proper manner, and therefore freedom of religion just doesn't exist. 
And another uh, LGBT organisation, Just Equal, which uh, they actually split from the equality campaign because they thought they were too moderate, they've called for the... you're a member of the emergency uh, vilification laws that were passed, you know, during the postal survey to, you know, stop hate mm-hmm. speech. Uh, they want them to be, you know, made permanent. So basically, uh, you know, these people, they, they still claim they believe in religious freedom, but you're not allowed to practice your religious belief and you're not allowed to express it. That's true. And they never did believe in it. They just said what they had to say in order to be able to convince voters that weren't sure on how to vote to try and get them over. And I mean, there was many people. I spoke to many people about this and there was a lot of people that had the argument, oh, well, you know, I mean, surely, you know, marriage is all thereafter. You know, I mean, once they have that, then everything will be nice and dandy. And I've heard this argument so many times and all you have to do is look back in history. There's been a lot of, through the decades, many, many um, different things have come into place that have progressed in regards to uh, gay rights and the LGBT movement over the years. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that we were discussing civil unionship. And, you know, I mean, at the time, I mean, many politicians, for instance, were saying, oh, well, you know, I mean, civil unions isn't marriage. We're not going to go for marriage. We're just going to be happy just to have civil unions. So then we're equal under the law as a civil union. So everybody then thought, okay, well, you know, that's not too bad because they're not going to go after marriage. That's going to be safe. Well, guess what? They got civil unions. That wasn't good enough. They had to then go for marriage laws. So this, this is what I mean. All you have to do is look back at how things have progressed and you'll notice a pattern that they'll say one thing. Once they've achieved it, then they'll go to the next objective because there's many things um, in order for them to um, achieve their SJW utopia that they're after, which is going to be absolutely chaotic. And it's very scary to me to know that they're going to be pursuing laws to, to be put into place uh, regarding these uh, so-called hate speech um, rules that they want to put into play, which is exactly what they did through the campaigning of the of the survey. I mean, that then was bad enough, and I mean, that really was a sign of things to come. And for them to now obviously come out and, and say that they would um, like such things to come into place now, I mean, that's very scary, and soon enough people aren't going to be able to stand for their, their faith. They're not going to stand by and be able to speak their mind on... Um, even things that haven't got anything to do with religion, but it could be just personal views, they're going to be, you know, um, not able to do so. So it's it's very scary where where this is going. It's sounding very communist-like um, in in the way they're approaching this. Now, uh, obviously, we uh, talked about the hearings are kept private, but uh, from what we've you know heard reported in the media that uh, Philip Ruddick has been challenging these LGBT organisations on the claims that uh, they're making, and so clearly, you know, Philip Ruddick is approaching this inquiry in in the you know proper way that it was set up to to look at ways to you know, further, uh, you know, protect religious uh, freedom. So we hope that uh, eventually, you know, when it reports back in uh, late March, uh, the uh, this inquiry, that, you know, it does 
actually say, you know, this is where we need to, you know, strengthen uh, religious freedom. But then, of course, the question is, you know, would any you know, protections proposed be legislated because mm, know, the, mm. the government doesn't have a majority uh, in the Senate? And it was interesting this week, uh, the Senate actually reduced a report on the Postal Survey saying, you know, oh, even though we won, it was still a horrible experience because, uh, you know, LGBT people's, you know, feelings, you know, got hurt and, you um, you know, there was there was one woman who you know claimed she was scared to go out out of the house house and that and so you know that that that's basically you know the firewall in the Senate who are you know going to basically block anything that's recommended. Well, the funny thing in regards to that is that from what I remember, it was the left that were very feral uh, on the on the pro SSM side. They were basically attacking people on the streets that had the the it's okay to vote no signs they were really you know out of hand and the no side if anything was um very professional and very um they they just kept their cool and and didn't go down to such lows um unfortunately in australia like we see uh with advertising it seems that when you're negative and when you do act in such um, childish manners, that actually wins votes, unfortunately. And playing the, the nice, sensible, professional sort of person or an image doesn't actually work uh, from what we've seen because the way the campaigns were run, you, you could have thought that the, the pro-SSM uh, campaign really had a disaster of a campaign but still ended up convincingly winning. So... I mean, it, it makes me laugh to think that these people thought that they were threatened or anything like that when it was the other way around when people, for instance, were going to church and then got blockaded by um, same-sex marriage supporters. The other side actually had it really easy. They they didn't have any threats. They didn't have any uh, people that um, caused any dramas. So that's one thing. And another thing I'd say is that I'm hoping that Philip Ruddock does the right thing here and that we can trust him to make sure that he um, does take everything into consideration and that he does right. But like you mentioned, I mean, at the end of the day, it's the Senate that's going to have to legislate this. So how confident are we that we're going to be able to have these uh, these rights protected? Because when you have Labor, the Greens, Xenophon and, um, you know, some others, for instance... They're, they're close to a majority or at least, you know, very, very much on that borderline that, that, that they've got the numbers. It's going to be very difficult, even, for instance, if the Liberal Party and One Nation, for instance, um, are, are voting for these freedoms to be, to, to be put into place. When you have the other people voting against it, the left might end up having the numbers. Um, obviously, the Labor and Greens parties are going to be voting against these, and I think a lot of people are going to be looking to the Xenophon team to see what they're going to be doing. And uh, from what I realised is in the past, they've been fairly pro-SSM. So um, them, Darren Hinch is a pro-SSM uh, person. So these uh, candidates can make or break this. And if they had any sensible um, dignity and and did the right thing they would think to themselves well really what 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 would be a um how how could you not be able to protect such freedoms as um people being able to practice their faith in the right manner and also be able to speak their mind without um having to be thrown in jail or uh 
or, you know, have anything, you know, and even when it comes to families, you know, them being able to send their kids to school without any, um, you know, forced curriculum sort of changes being put in place. It's just um, very scary times. The annual Closing the Gap report on uh, Indigenous welfare was uh, presented to Parliament at the beginning of the week, and not surprisingly, we are not closer to closing the gap with uh, still you know, poor health and education outcomes. And it was also the uh, 10th anniversary of the apology to the uh, so-called, uh, we should say, stolen uh, generation. And it was interesting at the time uh, uh, the Labor uh, Rudd government, they wouldn't uh, uh, give uh, compensation to those who claim they were uh, stolen. But now uh, Bill Shorten, in his response to the Closing the Gap report, uh, wants to uh, establish a, a compensation uh, fund, which will, uh, can't remember how many million, but it would offer lump sum payments of uh, 75 uh, thousand. And he also said that uh, because there's uh, last year there was this uh, Uluru statement from the heart, which uh, these you know, so-called Indigenous leaders said, we just don't want you know constitutional recognition. We want a Indigenous voice to Parliament enshrined in the the Constitution, so we can have a say on uh, what the laws of Australia are. And uh, Bill Shorten this week said, you know, we're not going to wait for a referendum. We're actually going to legislate uh, this body, which is as as not just racist, it's anti democratic, and he's not even letting mm. the uh, Australian people have a say because, of course, you know, if, uh, Labor, you know, doesn't doesn't trust the you know Australian people to, uh, you know, v- vote the, the the right way, and so uh, it's it's this you know indigenous you know virtue signalling and uh, symbolism going even further. Yeah, I mean, the Labor Party are known to. Uh always chase minority groups and, and throw money at them and, and appease them. And the the thing is, they're not actually helping them at all, but actually making matters worse because rather than actually doing anything for the communities and trying to improve their standards of living and, and do things for them, their way of handling uh, matters or, or making um, these people feel good is by doing these virtual signalling moments where they come out and apologise, even though apologising isn't going to at all change anything that happened in the past. I mean, it's it's just such a ridiculous way. Instead of actually going there and, and making sure that, you know, children aren't getting uh, raped and abused and that they're getting a good education, that people are getting off drugs and everything like the tough approach that... Um, the um, the Liberals took under uh, Mao Bruff when they had the intervention many years ago, where they were actually, um, you know, having a tough love approach to this matter. Uh, the the left just don't want to tackle the issue and actually do anything. They they just want to pretend that they're doing uh, something. Uh, the, the I guess you could call it the feel good. It's a feel good way of of looking at things. They're not actually doing anything for them, but you know, they're they're making it out like they're a feel-good sort of um, policy um, that, that, they're, that they're putting out there. And, you know, I mean, like you said, it's not giving anyone else a say. That why is it that such a small population of people, which is only uh, about 2% last time I've looked at, should now have a whole different body um, that 
just changes the whole constitution and everything this country was built on just to appease a little small minority group because they happen to be um, here on the land before um, Europeans came here. I mean, the the country has changed so much since then, and it wasn't established. It wasn't an established country to begin with. It was uh, um, a, a terra nullius situation. There was no um, property or, or anything. It was just uh, tribesmen that were, um, you know, walking around to different areas of of the country, and there was always tribes fighting each other anyway. I mean, unlike other situations that happen in many other countries, the Europeans that came to Australia were actually um, rather friendly to the Aboriginal people, uh, much different to where we've seen different stories happening, for instance, in South America and and whatnot, where uh, there was... Um, whole races of people wiped out. So I, I think it, it really is a put on for them to make matters um, sound so much um, appalling, much more than what they were, and obviously also push this uh, theory that they're, they're um, that the best way to tackle it is rather than actually sorting the issues and the problems of these groups because we can't. Uh, criticise these groups because they're minorities and and they can't do any wrong. We have to, you know, play on the play on words when it comes to these feel good uh, ways of tackling it. And we don't know how this uh, indigenous voice, you know, would be uh, constituted. Would it be a you know vote of you know uh, people who identify as uh, indigenous? And you know what power would they have? Would it just be a consultative body? Would they have the power to you know veto uh, certain government decisions? I mean, we still don't know. You know how it would actually you know be uh, beneficial. Uh, you know, let alone whether or would actually you know fit in with that. Uh, you know, system of government, which is based on, you know, one vote, uh, one value and equality before the law. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of unanswered questions here. I think for such uh, a move to be made, I mean, it would be drastically changing the country. It, It would just turn it upside down because, I mean, just imagine different bodies being established. Um, then you obviously have the issue of trying to figure out how this um, this works, this matter where, and they don't even know how it works. They haven't even really got a, uh, anything planned down where they say, okay, this is how we're going to do this. I mean, they're saying what they want is um, voices in, in parliament and, and, and whatnot to, to be able to constitute on things, but they, they can't even actually list down how they are going to organise this. It just seems to me like uh, just whinging about things rather than trying to improve, uh, you know, matters in their own communities. I mean, what are they going to be able to do that the parliament doesn't already do? If they really want to improve um, the lives of their people, then that's where they have to then go to the politicians that represent them areas and make sure that they tackle the issues and that they actually do something about this because them all of a sudden creating different bodies and whatnot isn't going to do anything at all. It was interesting in the previous segment we were uh, talking about how, you know, the the left uh, achieving a goal, it's never the end. They always demand something further. And with uh, Indigenous issues, it's been exactly the same. I mean, supposedly the 
1967 referendum was supposed to be, you know, uh, rec uh, about reconciliation. And then, no, that wasn't enough. Then there was land rights. And then after that, that wasn't enough. Then uh, there was the apology to the stolen generation. Now that wasn't enough. Uh, then they demanded constitutional recognition. And before they'd even got, got that, they said that that wasn't enough. And now they want this uh, you know, Indigenous voice to Parliament. And uh, of course, there's also the effort to, uh, you know, not just uh, change the date of Australia Day, but abolish the Australia Day uh, as well. So it just keeps getting more and more extreme, you know, these, you know, demands from the Indigenous activists. And like you were mentioning before, uh, you know, actually practical, you know, policies to stop uh, domestic violence, you know, sexual abuse, you know, poor health and uh, education outcomes confronting, you know, uh, unpleasant truths, uh, you know, just get swept to the side. And this is why the, the left is really their worst enemy, because they don't realise that many of these minority groups come to the um, conclusion that because they're getting money thrown at them, that they're all of a sudden they're friends. And that doesn't solve anything. I mean, the worst thing you can do is to go to someone that's um, struggling, for instance, and that's going through a rough time, and rather than actually helping them and, and trying to get them to improve themselves as a person and to get them into a better position, all you do is just throw some money at them, basically. I mean, it's, it's keeping them in that position and not getting them to improve their position. And this is what they do uh, with welfare and with other uh, matters that they throw out these freebies and the the minority groups just latch onto that and they don't understand that they're actually using them and then actually not making their lives any better because it doesn't actually solve the problems that they're facing it for instance at the start might might you know feel great and stuff and it might think they might think that it's helping but it isn't because where are they since 1967 to now they haven't actually gotten anywhere they haven't had any improvements in um, in their education and in their health. There's still many issues out there with the drugs and everything in the remote communities. I mean, this is 2018, yet we're still having issues like this. And it's only because that politicians aren't really interested in bettering their situation. And they want them to be um, basically enslaved and the, the, the way they do this is by making sure that they don't achieve and by just constantly, you know, um, feeding them little money just to keep them surviving rather than actually helping these people. And what do they achieve? They achieve their support because they feel that they have to rely on the system to be able to, um, for them to be able to survive. And rather than actually, you know, going out there and trying to, you know, create better lives for themselves. So this is, this is a strategy that many politicians, particularly on the left, do. They um, throw things out to minority groups, make them look like they're friends, but they're really actually going against their best interests, keeping them in uh, really poor conditions, really, really bad state of, of life. And you know, not for the, for them to just uh, continue being reliant rather than actually achieving anything. 
There was another school shooting in the United States, this time at uh, Marjorie Stoneham Douglas High School in Florida. Uh, 17 students were uh, shot dead. The uh, shooter was a uh, former expelled student, Nicholas Jacob Cruz, who uh, is still alive and in uh, police custody. Uh, he had a history of mental uh, instability and I posted on social media you know, all about his uh, guns and that, and he was uh, reported to the FBI and they did uh, have some sort of investigation uh, on him but it fizzled out and uh, he did pass a, a background check to uh, purchase uh, semi-automatic uh, uh, firearms and of course this has flared up the you know, uh, gun control uh, now uh, campaign and uh, they've uh, been eager to use the the students at the school in uh, you know calling for uh, gun control there was an anti-gun rally uh, outside uh, a federal courthouse in uh, Florida where um, they heard from uh, some of the survivors and the media has been keen to uh, promote uh, that uh, this was the 18th school shooting this year, which has resulted in uh, 19 dead. Yeah, this is, um, it's a very concerning thing that we're seeing a lot of uh, school shootings being taken place. Of course, we do have to remember, though, that the size of the United States being... Uh, in the 300 million mark um i mean it, it's such a massive populated country that i mean it, it's going to be obvious that there's going to be many more of these sort of crimes happening rather than where we are here in australia or anywhere else in a smaller country but in saying that obviously it's not something to be um excused it's got to be looked at it's um it, it's always been the case that in the u.s there has been um, a lot of crime with gangs in particular, mainly, um, if anything, there have been um, gangs that have, have come from minority groups, such as uh, Hispanic communities and um, African-American communities and, and whatnot. But in the end of the day, I mean, gun control isn't something that's going to fix this and it's only going to make matters worse because the the worst thing you can do is take guns out of the innocent uh, person's hand and um, make it remain in the in the criminal's hands. I mean that that is not a solution to the problem. I mean we, we we've seen these these debates pop up and the left always want to in the media they always want to use these and I think it's it's very wrong to even use situations like this to further a political agenda. I think it's disgraceful and they should be ashamed of themselves doing it but they always do this. I mean, it just shows the kind of moral standard that they have. But uh, if you... Yeah. It reminds me that, uh, you know, whenever uh, a massacre, you know, or a terrorist act happens, the perpetrator is always known to authorities, yet they fail to act. But, you know, there's always demands for, you know, in the case of terrorism, you know, more surveillance laws. In this case, you know, cries for more, you know, gun control when it was a, you know, government fa uh, failure under the existing laws, which, you know, caused, uh, you know, this... Uh, tragedy uh, and of course you know, uh, a lot of people have been talking about the fact that uh, you know mental health pe people who you know do suffer from mental health issues you know they're not um, you know taking care of the 
in the same way, you know, they were, you know, 50 years ago when, you know, they did put them, uh, you know, in institutions for, you know, their safety and our safety. But because, you know, that was, you know, deemed, you know, cruel and there were some, you know, untowards practices in mental health facilities, there's, you know, been this deinstitutionalized movement, which is, and it's the same in Australia. I mean, you know, we have, you know, in Melbourne, where I am, we have the, you know, the car attacks by these, you know, mentally ill people who are known to police yet they still manage to you know uh, you know run people over on the street that's right and then that, that's exactly right i mean anybody that wants to cause damage can and i mean you can do this even without guns i mean you can do them with knives you can do them with cars trucks you they, i mean we've seen a range of different uh objects that have been used to create um these attacks and by Pulling guns out of society, it only makes criminals more confident in being able to commit acts without there being any repercussion. Because at the end of the day, at the back of a criminal's mind, he might want to go and um, cause a, a tragedy or, or attack somebody, but he doesn't know if that person also has a gun on them. So he's always going to be thinking that he could be then shot from, for doing such a thing. But now, if you were taking guns out of innocent hands, well, I mean, the criminals are still going to get them illegally. So they're still going to be you know, running havoc, and they're going to be even running it worse because there's not going to be any consequences um, when the innocent people can't even protect themselves. I mean, this is disgusting. I mean, how, how does that solve anything, you know? I mean, and we, we're just seeing it over and over again that they're pushing for this, and it's not going to help the cause. It's only going to make uh, rights get taken out of individuals that have done nothing wrong, that have every right to protect themselves. And especially in a, in a country like America that has... Uh, a, a big history of gang violence and everything. I mean, just imagine uh, being um, living in an area um, where this is rampant and, and not even be able to protect yourself and, and to have to go there and just walk down the street not knowing if you're going to make it out alive. Yeah, and good luck, you know, confiscating... Uh, you know, uh, hundreds of millions of, you know, guns from a, you know, a country that is, you know, such highly populated and, uh, you know, dispersed as the, the United States. I mean, it's, it, it's not going to uh, happen. And, you know, I don't know, I, I don't think the reason why these, you know, school shootings keep happening in the United States is, is because of, you know, uh, access to guns, because it's clearly, you know, ever since they, you know, first started becoming a thing that it's clearly, you know, a copycat thing that, you know, the ideal for, you know, these young sociopaths is to shoot up schools. Like, it, it just seems to be, you know, ingrained in, you know, these, you know, deranged people in America that, you know, that's how you, um, you know, act out your, uh, you know, deranged, you know, fantasies. Like, it's, it's, it's something that's unique to the United States, but I don't think it's to do with guns. Well, no, because, I mean, there's many other countries that, that have uh, guns that are legally obtained by their citizens and they don't have those problems. And, I mean, like you said, uh, it is, seems to be a history um, for a while now, many years that this has been taking place. And it seems to be, for instance, like mentioned, that young people that are frustrated and going through difficulties that have mental illnesses, that they see that as an option of proving a point or, or um, being able to sort of, um, you know, 
in their minds, you know, uh, go against, you know, uh, society that they do something like this and that people get harmed. But it's definitely got nothing to do with guns because these people would be able to obtain them, you know, by different methods. I mean, if they get involved with the wrong people, they're definitely going to be able to get a hold of guns. So all it does is makes uh, certain that innocent people, citizens that are doing the right thing, aren't able to protect themselves. And I mean, that isn't def it's definitely not beneficial. And another thing I want to note as well is that it seems... Um, in regards to the media, especially, that they use these uh, school shooting attacks to further try and um, destabilise um, the movements of the alt-right and to um, continually try and, and paint it in a bad image because they were saying that this uh, Nicholas Cruz character was a, a white supremacist and, and all of these things, which can't be true because with someone like a surname Cruz in America, there's not many people that I would take that are in America with such a name that originated from Europe. I mean, most people are from, say, Mexico, uh, Puerto Rico, Central America that, that are in the United States. So this person wasn't even white, as far as I'm aware, yet they were um, labelling him as such just to paint a, a, a bad picture on, on the alt-right movement where um, the establishment are seeing... Um, for many years now as, as a threat. So they're, they're obviously, you know, using such tragedies to further agendas and uh, paint certain movements in a bad light, which I think is really bad. And then they're obviously continuing with fake news and saying things that aren't true. And rather than just focusing on this me mentally ill individual, because that's what it was, it wasn't that he was uh, some sort of white supremacist or had any, um, you know, um, ideologies that were considered extreme. It was just the person himself that decided to take a, um, such a move to prove a point um, and to go against some sort of, um, um, you know, force of society that he believed he had to do. I mean, it had nothing to do with political motives or anything. And the media always have to um, make it as if it is so, and I think that's a shame. And now gun control advocates, they're going to run hard on this issue because uh, you know, it is a, uh, you know, the midterm elections in November this year. So, you know, they're going to campaign, you know, right up until uh, election day and are really going to, you know, hammer, uh, you know, Trump on this especially because, you know, they're, uh, you know, progressives, you know, they think they've, uh, Trump's on the nose and, you know, they've been uh, emboldened by a few victories at the end of uh, last year. And it was interesting that uh, uh, The Guardian, they uh, did a crowdfunding uh, exercise where they raised a hundred thousand dollars to uh, do, you know, investigative pieces on uh, gun violence, which of course just means they're going to produce, you know, more uh, pro uh, propaganda. So, mm. and I, I, obviously, you know, it's talked about in the United States. You know, the the gun lobby is, you know, really powerful and that. But it's not just that; it's the fact that the American people they still vote for, you know, pro gun, you know, politicians. I mean. Uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, liberals, you know, they're, uh, you know, deluding themselves a bit, you know, they think that, you know, this is going to, you know, change, um, you know, pe uh, people's views on the, the, sec the Second Amendment. I mean, because uh, the American people, they've never elected, you know, a Congress that has voted in favour of gun control pretty much since the first assault weapons ban in 1994. 
Yeah, most people do support, um, you know, um, their firearms, their right um, to obtain them. I mean, there's obviously uh, certain demographics uh, of people that um, want gun control to be um, implemented. And you'd have to think, well, you know, what kind of societies implement gun control? Normally they're communist societies. So, I mean, these people are are trying to, um, you know, always portray themselves as, you know, uh, free and, you know, individuals that, you know, are all for peace and everything. But the the people that take guns off people are normally dictators. So, I mean, that that sort of says something there. And and not only that, I mean, um, the other factor that has to be put into place here is... I mean, not only that it doesn't work, but these people that advocate gun control are not of this world. They're not realistic with things. They they, they always think of utopian societies. This um, somehow this you know nice hippie utopian society where everybody loves each other and everyone's nice to each other and there's no such thing as violence. And this is just unrealistic. It'll never happen. It's never going to be um, something that happens within the human race because. Um, at the end of the day, it's not the way things work. I mean, everybody at some stage is going to have conflicts with other individuals. And they're, they're not looking at things um, from seeing the results of how things work, how they don't work. They're just continually focusing on some sort of society that doesn't exist. And because of this, there's going to be a lot of consequences if they get their way. They have to start realizing that all of the pain that's going to be involved when you are to disarm your citizens because the bad people are still going to end up with the weapons but the good people aren't and the good people are not going to be able to defend themselves that only means that the bad people are going to be more rampant they're going to be more crime because they're going to be able to get away with it I mean, it was funny, I remember last year we were discussing this when uh, there was a politician over in America that um, thought it would be a good idea to put a red light um, on the the front doorstep um, to warn people or whatever that it was a gun-free zone. I mean, like, imagine that. I mean, you know, oh, yeah, red light on on the front um, porch saying it's a gun-free zone. So then people that are criminals, obviously, oh, yeah, this person's disarmed. They haven't got any weapons. Let's go and rob them. I mean, this is, you know, this is how stupid these people are. So they they don't think properly. They don't obviously, you know, look at anything realistic. And they're just focused on these stupid utopian ideals that aren't going to achieve anything and that are going to cause a lot of pain for the citizens. But they are constantly saying that they're they're here to protect. Well, certainly all the stories we've uh, discussed today, there'll all be ones to uh, watch in the next uh, weeks and months. So thank you once again, Damien, for uh, joining me and discussing them. Thanks for having me, Tim. All right, everybody, that's the show for today. Our next upcoming event is the Free Speech Rally, hosted by the newly formed Australian Freedom of Speech Movement, which will be held in Melbourne outside the State Library of Victoria on Saturday, February 24th at 1pm. It aims to take a stand against the stifling of free speech in Australia. 
both in our laws and through political correctness. So I hope many of you can make it. Also happening on the same weekend is uh, Dave Pillell from Church and State is holding his first major event, the Church and State Summit 2018, on the 23rd to 24th of February in Brisbane, which will feature many high-profile speakers, including Margaret Court and former Deputy Prime Minister John Anderson. Thanks once again for your company, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in to The Unshackled Waves. Please visit theunshackledwaves.net for all the ways to subscribe and follow the show. Don't forget to pick up your free ebook at theunshackledbattlefield.net and keep checking out theunshackled.net for all the latest news and commentary.